Well, hey, good morning. How we doing? We good? Well, hey, I'm excited to be here today. If you haven't seen me before, if we haven't met before, uh, or if this is your first time, uh, my name's David. I'm on staff here at Frontline, and uh, if you're visiting, like I said, this is the perfect Sunday to visit because we're jumping into a brand new series, and it is called Crash. And I love the tagline. The tagline is this, when relationships collide. And so just by a show of hands, let's just have a little bit of fun uh, as we start. But how many of you have actually been in a car accident of some sort in your life? Okay, good, good. And then how many of you have actually seen a car accident at some point in your life? All right, this is the rest of us watching the first group um, and seeing how you drive. We see you in the parking lot. We see you on Plainfield. We see you on the highway. We know that some of you are more prone to accidents than others. Um, so here's the thing. In case you haven't been in a car accident or you haven't seen a car accident, I just wanted to have a little fun with you this morning. So we're going to watch just a really short video, and this is what happens when you combine one inch of snow, some Canadian drivers, and a hill. Check this out. How many of you have actually seen that video before? Isn't that awesome? That's a lot of fun. That's going to be us here in, what, a month or two months as soon as we start getting some snow? Uh, here's the thing. Here's, here's why I love that video. I, I just think it's funny. I think it gets better and better and better. The best part is when you see the salt truck actually still salting as he's sliding down the road to plow the police car. I just love that, you know, the irony. Um, but here's the thing. This is why I show the video this morning is as we think about relationships and as we jump into a series called Crash, all about relationships, all of us have been in relationships that somehow ended in a type of crash, whether it was conflict over uh, in between a marriage, whether it was conflict at work, whether it was in school or with a classmate or with a neighbor, all of us, as we look back on our lives, have situations in which our relationship with someone else, conflict entered it somehow, and it resulted in a fiery crash. 
Some of us, it's just a little fender bender. You know, it's not a big deal. It was just a rub or, you know, that was awkward or, you know, let's just move on and try to forget it. But others, uh, the toll of the damage is actually quite severe. Maybe it ended in a divorce. Maybe it ended in you being fired. Maybe it ended in you having to relocate. Maybe it ended you in handcuffs. I don't know what it is, but a lot of us have repercussions in our lives of relationships that when conflict showed up, things just didn't end well. And so here's the thing. Here's just a piece of news that I want to tell you from the get-go is that all of us, all of us were involved in most of the relational crashes in your life. And this is why I say most, is because all of us have relational crashes that we've interacted with or that we've, that we've seen or been hurt by or been a part of, um, but sometimes we're the victims of other people's crashes, right? Maybe you're, you're the product of a divorce, that you're a, a son or a daughter that watched your parents and as they fought or as they broke, uh, it, it affected you in a really negative way. Maybe, maybe you were on the receiving side of some sort of abuse, some sort of hardship, some, somebody took advantage of you, someone hurt you, whatever it is, this is why we say most, that you are involved in most of the relational crashes in your life. And so why are we spending a series on this or why do we name it crash? It's because all of us deal with this in some sort or another and it's just worth us taking a, take, just setting aside some time to work through what does God say about relationships and how do we, if we're disciples or for Jesus followers, how are we supposed to act in our relationships relationships with other people because relationships matter to God a lot, a lot. In fact, we were even created to model after who God was, and God in himself is community. And so we, when we were created, were created for community. So how we relate to each other is really important because healthy relationships lead to life. They lead to flourishing. They lead to, to fruit and to abundance. But unhealthy relationships, as all of us are well aware, lead to a lot of pain. They lead to a lot of devastation. They lead to a lot of, a lot of other negative consequences. I don't know. Fill in the blank what it is for you. And so here's the question that I just want to pose as we, as we think about this or as we dive into Scripture today. The question is this. When conflict enters my relationship with someone, how do I keep the relationship from ending in a crash. So to do that, we're gonna jump into our Bible. Um, so if you have a Bible, pull out your Bible. If you have a phone, pull out your phone. We're also gonna have words on the screen for you so you can follow along. But if you're a note taker, take out the notes. Um, and this is what we're gonna jump into. We're jumping into uh, a book called Ephesians. And what you have to know about Ephesians is it was written by a guy named Paul. So Paul was an apostle of Jesus. And, and what that means is Paul... Um, had this really unique and crazy experience with Jesus, and Jesus changed Paul's life. So Paul went from being a non-believer and a persecutor of people who follow Jesus to being a leader in the Christian church. That's what uh, uh, the word apostle means. It means Paul was an evangelist. He traveled around, and he made new disciples. He would preach to large groups of people. And, but here's the thing that made him an apostle and not just an evangelist is he was also a leader. He would go first. He, he would go to places that didn't yet have churches. And so what we're reading today is the product 
of what Paul had planted earlier. And so Paul went to a bunch of different communities throughout the Middle East. I'm going to show you a map here in a second. But he went through a bunch of different communities, and he would show up. These communities had never heard the gospel before. They never knew who Jesus was. They never heard. And so he would come in, and he would preach. He would find public centers. He would find large groups of people, and he would say, this is who Jesus is. This is how Jesus changed my life. This is what Jesus calls us to, and because this is the character of God. God wants restoration with his people, and so people would hear this message. They would respond to the message, and they would become disciples. And so Paul starts planting these churches all over the place. He starts planting them, and they're smaller. They're like family type of house churches, and so he plants them, and then plants more, and plants more. And so Paul would go to these giant city centers, these big places, and would plant churches all throughout. Well, you fast forward just a couple years of Paul's life, Paul actually ends up in jail. He ends up in prison for his faith, for leading this movement. And so in prison, when he's literally in chains, he pulls out a pen and a paper or whatever, quill, whatever it was, and he begins scripting letters that he writes to all of these former churches that he had planted. And the question would be why? Because Paul was like their pastor. Paul would move into a community and and share the good news of who Jesus was, but he would raise up other leaders, other disciples, other pastors, and would shepherd them and guide them. But Paul would oversee these pastors and, and would write to them and encourage them. And so Paul, in prison, begins writing this letter, which is why it's called Ephesians. He's writing it to a group of people in Ephesus. And so Ephesus, you just have to understand, uh, I've shared this with you before about what Ephesus is or what it was like, like a city center. Um, But a lot of us probably have some sort of a framework, like if I say Ephesus, it was in the Middle East, maybe you think of like Sparta, Michigan, right? Like what do you think of when I say Sparta? Home. Home. Thank you, Keith. All right. So I'm going to insult Sparta now. This is awkward, right? You think of cows, you think of fields, you think of corn, you think of goats, you know, you think small community. Well, here's the thing about Ephesus is Ephesus was actually one of the biggest city centers of the time. So let me show you a map, and this will explain why. So if you look, this is like the Middle East, and this is kind of how it was broken up at the time. But, but if we zoom in here, this is Asia. If we zoom in, Ephesus is actually located right here on the western coast, and it's significant. The location is significant because it's on a body of water. So back before they had FedEx and UPS and DHL and USPS, they had boats, And they had horses, and they had carts, and so they would travel, and city centers became huge because these were areas of commerce, these were hubs for entertainment, these were hubs for culture. So when Paul is writing this letter, he is writing not just to a small particular church, it's not just to one small group of people. In fact, when he would write it in Ephesus, he was writing it to the church The big C, capital C, universal, the church that follows Jesus. And what they would do is they would receive this letter and then they would pass the letter from church community to church community to church community to church community. So he's writing saying this is how we ought to act and this is how we ought to relate to people if you are followers of Jesus, which was who this letter was intended for all along. So one more picture I just want to show you just to give you an idea of how big Ephesus was. This was the amphitheater in Ephesus. 
mean, if you just look at this, it can see thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. And the speaker or performer would be able to be down here and the acoustics of the space would allow it, right? This is before sound systems. The acoustics would allow it to be heard by all. Ephesus was a huge city center. It wasn't like Sparta. It was more like New York City. It was huge. And so as Paul writes, he says this, Ephesians 4, starting with verse 1. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of, say it with me, peace. Paul is providing a big picture perspective to the church in regards to relationships. He was saying, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is what it means to live and act and how to relate to people as a follower of Jesus. And so I just want to take this verse by verse. We don't, we don't do this a lot, but this one, there's so much packed in just a short amount of words that we just need to go verse by verse and line by line just to explain the significance of what Paul was saying, but also what the people would hear and understand. So we're just going to start right here, and we're going to do this. As a prisoner for the Lord then, now, I gave you a piece of information just a couple minutes ago. I want to see if you were, if you were paying attention, if you were following me. Where is Paul as he's writing this letter? He's in prison. He's in prison. And this is unique because a lot of us, maybe even as we open our Bibles and as we study it, this is a really easy first line to overlook because we already know he's in prison. We already know he's in jail. We already know he's in chains. We, we already know he's been taken and he's held captive. But here's the thing that's important because Paul, if we look at other areas of Paul's writing, other letters that he wrote to other churches, Paul uses this imagery over and over and over again. And he talks about being a prisoner or being a slave. And the thing that makes this so significant is that Paul wasn't just writing as a prisoner of the Roman army in jail. But Paul was saying as a prisoner for who? For the Lord. It's a prisoner for the Lord. Let me read this. This is out of Romans 6, verse 15, and it says this. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. As Paul is writing, this is so significant, and it was significant for the people in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, to understand, but it's really important also for us to understand what Paul is saying here, is Paul is writing not just on behalf of a prisoner in the Roman army, but as a prisoner of the Lord, saying, I once was chained to my sin. I once was chained to my guilt. I once was chained to the things that I had done wrong, to the, to the people that I've hurt to the commandments that I've broken, to the way that I've lived, to the way that I've hurt people. I was, I was once chained in a prisoner of this thing that guaranteed death. But 
when I met Jesus, when my relationship started with Jesus, I was set free. I was liberated from the chains that held me down in the past. And now what I am chained to is Jesus because nothing else can be chained to him. I am chained, I am bonded. I wish I had handcuffs, right? I'm, I'm handcuffed to Jesus, and when I'm handcuffed to Jesus, nothing else can be held on. So as Paul's writing, he's saying this about himself, but he's also reminding the church that he's writing to, saying this, as prisoners for the Lord, as those under the authority and rule of righteousness, those who follow Jesus, this is who I am speaking to. So let's go on, what's he say next? He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. And I love this verse. I just have to tell you, um, if you how many of you have ever heard of like a life verse? You ever heard of somebody having like a life verse? Um, what a life verse is, just because there's a handful of you, what a life verse is, is there's like a verse or a piece of, of scripture that just speaks to you in a different way. And, and as you read this scripture, as you apply it to your life, you say, this is, this is what I want my life to be known for that I want it to be built on. It, it changed the direction of my life. So for me, this is that verse. It's Ephesians 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. And I love this because Paul identifies two things about people in this one line. He says this, I urge you to live a life worthy. Say it with me. Worthy of the calling that you have received. And this calling piece that he talks about, he just hit on in the first line. He's saying if you are a disciple, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have given your life to him, if you've chained yourself to Jesus and you are now under his rule, you receive a calling. And that calling is your purpose. It's this purpose that you offer the world. It's this purpose of your life. It's the reason that you exist. And so what is that calling? He's, he's, he's describing it here, but you have a calling. I'm going to get there in a second. You have a calling, but you also have a choice. That when you receive a calling, your calling is to be a disciple. Your calling is to put on a pedestal Jesus and your relationship with him and what God's desire is, what his heart is, is for the world. Your calling as a disciple, not as a pastor, not as a, a Sunday school teacher, not as someone who works in a church. Your calling as a disciple, as one who follows the Lord, is to put Jesus and your relationship with him on a pedestal for all to see. But so this is important. If that is our calling that we have received, when we've chained ourselves to Jesus, we now have a choice to live our lives in a matter that is what? Worthy of that calling. We now have an option. And Paul, as he's writing this to the people, he's not just saying, hey, do it if you feel like it. Do it if it's easy. Do it if it's convenient. What he's saying is, as obedient disciples of Jesus, we have a calling to represent our Savior to a world that needs him, but the one person that can stand in the way of that is you. So my urge, my plea, as I beg you, my I'm begging you that you would live your life in a matter that's worthy of the gospel, that's worthy of the gift that you have received through Jesus because it came at a very high price. So um, if you notice this, I have this up here. Um, these are some cones. Imagine these are bigger, okay? That's why I have the picture. Imagine these are bigger. Um, as you're driving on the road, and if you see an orange cone, do you drive towards the cone or away from the cone? 
away from the cone. Most of you drive away from the cone. Most of you, okay? Something, if you really want just fun, free entertainment, there's a driving school right behind us here, and they hit cones all the time, all right? And some of you need to go back to that because I've seen you drive. But anyway, different sermon, right? Cones mark something that's dangerous. They mark something that is broken. They mark some place that you shouldn't go or you shouldn't drive to. They, they mark something that's broken. You, th- you think of like a pothole. You think of like a breakage in the road. You think of like a, a broken guardrail or something like that. It's a temporary solution. What, what you do is you lay these cones out so that people don't drive there, right? Here's the thing. This is how many of us live our lives. So I'm going to come up here so that our Facebook Live audience can follow also, okay? So just hang with me. This is how many of us live our lives. <clears throat> As we go through life... Let's think about it linearly. I'm here and I'm moving this direction. As we go through life, if we ever have a relational breakage with someone, if we ever have conflict with someone, when two people come together and they fight or they disagree or or they don't get along or something happens where something's been broken in the relationship, it's easy to mark it with a cone. And many of us, not all of us, but many of us continue living life with that in the rearview mirror. But then often it happens again. So maybe this one, this was like a, a relationship that went bad when you were in high school or college. Maybe it was a broken relationship between parents and kids. Maybe it was a broken relationship with a sibling. They did something that hurt you deeply. And so you mark it in your life and you just go, that, that was a painful moment. It's not resolved. It hasn't been fixed. But you move on because life moves on. But then something else happens again and you're in a job this time. And something happens with you and your boss and you get fired or you get demoted, or you get written up, or it happens with somebody, with a coworker, or somebody leaves, or the scandal, or something, something big that happens, but you keep moving on. Maybe later in life it's a marriage that collapses or crumbles or, or doesn't, doesn't go on. It just, we, we call it end, we call it quits. Maybe it's a friendship that you just have a disagreement with and it broke. Maybe it's a sibling, like I said. Whatever it is, there are feuds or conflicts in our life that are just littered. And so as we look back, if we're really honest, as we get back, you know, where we're at in life, and I'm going to challenge you to do this today. As you look back on your life, where are the relational breakages that you can identify in your relationships with other people? As you look back, where is there a conflict that still exists? Where is there something that happened that, that is just broken and it's not working and you don't talk anymore and you kind of just moved on? And this is why I ask because oftentimes what we think is super far behind actually is quite close. Because as many of us know, or if you've experienced this, life isn't linear. Life is dynamic. That our life and our context and our relationships are constantly changing all the time, but so are other people around. And it's impossible to leave relational breakages like this in our past because eventually we start trying to navigate through life and avoiding all these broken areas or disregarding them or ignoring them. And they just have this nasty way of coming back up, don't they? This is the purpose of what Paul is writing about to the Ephesian church. He's saying, in your relationships with one another, if you've received a calling from the Lord, you now have a different set of guidelines in which you are required to treat people. That as you go through life, you you can't just leave these cones behind you. 
You can't just ignore them and act like they don't exist. In fact, what you've been called to do as a disciple is to look back on these relational breakages in your life and go address them. So how do you do that? How do you go back? Well, let's go to the next line. It says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And here's the thing, I'll be the first one up here to tell you. If I look at causes for relational breakages, as I look back on my life and I see these cones, as I look back, a cause of many, if not all of them, has something to do with these first two. Be humble and be gentle. The humility piece, the opposite of humility would be pride. The number of times that I've intersected or, I don't know, conflicted or broke something with someone typically involved my pride getting in the way of me wanting to be right about something, of me wanting to be heard, or of me being above something, or me disregarding somebody. That oftentimes pride just has this way of sneaking itself in to relationships and an inability to own or apologize or be humble about situations actually causes friction and breakages in relationships. But then this other piece, be gentle. I think particularly like if you think about Facebook or Twitter or social media, um, it's removed this face-to-face -face barrier that we once had to deal with. That if we had something to say, we had to say it to their face. But now, these new avenues of communication allow us to be harsh with people. To be quick. To be brash. To be rude. And we write it. I mean, I, I just got to tell you guys, I've been shocked at the amount of messages or interactions or brokenness that I've either received or been witness of in the recent past also because of people that write or flip and they, they shoot something out so quickly. And then once you have a face-to-face, -face, the conversation's totally different. This is what Paul is writing to. He's writing about, he's saying, be gentle with people because people are fragile. They're worth taking care of. Then this next one, I hate this line. This is be patient. I am not patient at all. Patience is so hard, right? Amen, anybody? Amen, thank you. Okay, you're with me. Be patient with one another. I love this, what it says in Greek, um, if you translate patient, the word patient, it means long-suffering. I hate that word even more. Because <laughs> you combine suffering with a long period of time. That's the point. Also means this, be slow to anger, be slow to avenge. Isn't it true that many of us, we're, slow, we're, we're quick to make it right. We're quick to punch back, we're, we're quick to, to reiterate, we're quick to whatever it is, we're quick. What Paul is saying is slow down. Embrace the suffering. Embrace the breakage for the sake of the relationship, but more so for the sake of the gospel. And here's this last part, bearing with one another in love. The world is desperate for people who have love. And this love that's used, right, again in, in Greek, the word love is agape. Have you heard the word agape before? Say agape. Agape. There's a couple different types of the word love that are used in scripture. So for us, we say love, you know. I love God, I love my wife, I love pizza. I love them all very differently. 
But then this word agape, as translated, agape means love that's expressed outwardly with action. Paul is saying to his church, to these churches, to the the church, the big C church, and to us, in your relationships with people, love them in a way that's felt and experienced, backed by action. Bearing with one another in love. And then here's the last thing. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Paul's intention here is that as representatives of Jesus and of the gospel and of who God is in his his magnificent love to represent him well by loving other people well. That when the world looks at relationships in the church, when the world looks at the relationships of people who are in the church, who are disciples of Jesus, they look and they see something totally different. That is the calling to which all of us have been called. And so if you're a Jesus follower, it, it's, more, it, it's less of like a preference and like, a, hey, do it if you can, again, if it's convenient or easy. No, no, what Paul is saying is do it out of an act of obedience, that you love people well, and this is how you do it. And this is why he writes this, right? Because no one models it better than the person of Jesus. No one. Uh, Jesus is recorded saying in one of the Gospels these words. It's, on, it's found in John 17. But Jesus is praying to his Father in heaven for the believers, for the disciples, for you and I, and also for the people that followed him. And Jesus says this, my prayer is not for them alone. It's not just for these disciples. It's not just for my followers. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That is so significant because a message is, of course, words and what we say, but more importantly, it's how we act. Through the message of how we interact and relate to one another, Jesus is saying, my prayer is that people would witness that and come to faith in the gospel through it, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete, say it with me, unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Just as I think about my own life, as I look back on it and and relationships and brokenness, um, there was one one that was really significant that kind of bubbled to the surface a whole lot more than the other ones. You know, there was one that was much more significant, and this was, um, without going into too much detail, this, this was a guy that mattered a whole lot to me for about three years of my life. It was a guy that in a time of very brokenness and a lot of um, hurt and pain that I carried with it, I, I really built a relationship with this guy, uh, and, and he was like a dad to me. And here's where it gets complicated is it was also in a work environment and he was a boss. And something happened in the relationship. Something broke. There was conflict that existed in that relationship. And I had done something wrong. 
I'll just tell you, I, I had gotten busted for talking about this guy behind his back when I was angry, when I was frustrated. I went behind his back and I was talking to someone and someone in a leadership position. And what do you think happened when the boss finds out that someone underneath them, an intern, is talking bad, behind, uh, bad about him behind his back? How do you think that goes with a relationship? Not good. Okay, thank you for the, the sympathy. Not good. Not good. In fact, I remember he called me into his office once, and uh, we sat down, and he said, here's the thing. Typically, most people would just fire you. And you can just imagine, right, my heart that just sinks at this moment, going, I'm, I'm done for. And he said, I'm going to use this to teach you. But nothing was quite the same after that. In fact, there was a lot of tension and there was a lot of brokenness and there was a lot of pain and most of it was unresolved. And here's the thing, it ended up with me quitting and leaving. And the way that I had quit and the way that I left, if it wasn't already broken, it was shattered at that point. And I left and I moved on and I got to this point two years later that I'm up here and as I'm looking back on my life, and as God's working in my heart and breaking me and it's softening me for who he is and what he has done for me, I look back and see this giant orange cone of something that I never dealt with. And here's the thing. Chances are that that's going to intersect at some point again in my life. And through my relationship with God and through the leading of other people around me, I actually, get this, I shot him a text. I said, hey, I'm just wondering if you'd ever be open to meeting up for lunch. And he said, sure. He surprised me. He got back to me really quick. And so we set up a date, and I was dreading the date and dreading the conversation. And we showed up, and we sat down in a Qdoba. Thank you, Brad, for the pitch earlier. And we sat in this Qdoba, and I looked him in the eye, and I said, I just want to apologize to you. Because what I did was wrong. And I'm sorry for hurting you. I'm sorry for disrespecting you. I'm sorry for leaving in a way that didn't glorify our Father in heaven. I'm sorry for what I did, and it was mine, and I just want to own it, and I want you to know that I'm just asking for your forgiveness. And I just have to tell you, the peace that washed over me when I was able to articulate, this is where I'm at, I just want to ask for your forgiveness. It was this peace that only comes from obedience. This is what God did for us, that through the person of Jesus, we who were in the wrong, God sought us out. He sought us out despite the brokenness, despite the pain, despite the sin that we carry, despite all of this. God sought us out through the person of Jesus and sought to reconcile and sought to make it right with us, and he made the first move. And so as Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, what Paul is saying is because God has done this for us, this is the command for us to do it for others so that all may know of the goodness and the richness and the gloriousness and the love that God has for all of us. So here's how I want to end, and I don't do this often, um, but as we look back on our lives, um, I want to challenge you to just some specific outcomes today. And so if you're writing or if you're taking notes, I want you to write these down. But I, these are really important and can drastically change the trajectory of your life, 
They can drastically change the relationships you have with other people. And it puts in obedience God on a pedestal that says, this is who my God is, and this is how he's worked in my life, and I want to extend the same gift to you that I have also received. And so these three things look like this. The first is this, identify collision areas in your life. Just as you look back, where are the traffic cones? Where are the breakages in relationship? Where is there something that hasn't yet been addressed? Where is there something that there's just tension or something unresolved? First step, it's easy. Just identify it. But number two, return. Return to the scene of the crash. You like the metaphor we're going with? Go back to it. This is really important. I think followers of Jesus should be best known for how they clean up crash sites rather than how they cause them. As we go back to the site of the accident where the relational breakage and conflict happens, go back and do this one. Number three, repair the damage. Not as one who's looking to be right, not as one who's looking to be heard, not as one who's looking to to get something off their chest or off their back, but go in as one who's representing Jesus say, I just want to forgive, and I just want to own, and I just want to apologize because I care a lot about you, and because I've also been the recipient of one who did the same thing for me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, thanks for the opportunity to be a part of your church. Thank you for the calling that you've given us as disciples to take your message to take your gospel, to take our experience with you and how you've worked in our lives. Thank you for using us as vessels of your grace for others. We're so grateful for the grace and the forgiveness that we've received from you, but we ask God for courage and boldness to reach out to others who we've wronged or others who have wronged us. And as we seek to forgive them, Father, we just pray that you would use us in a powerful way to put who you are on display. And God, we know we can't, we can't reconcile every situation. We know that reconciliation is out of our hands and it's in yours. But Father, I pray for obedience as a church, that we would start by forgiving others who have wronged us and also own the mistakes that we've done, again, for your sake and your gospel. We love you, Father. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen.